Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is Jen Scott. Jen is a registered dietitian specializing in sports nutrition. She's also a running coach, a mom of three, and a marathon and ultra marathon runner. You might know her on Instagram as marathonmama underscore RD, and she joins me now. Jen, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to get to talk with you. So I apparently we share a last name and we also share a Portland, Oregon connection, which we were just chatting about. Um, Jen, you're out in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and I actually lived in Portland for almost nine years. So that's a fun, <laughs> no relation and never met each other, but yet have those two things in yeah. common. So that was, it's always fun to see. So uh, I'm very excited to have you on the show today because I'm excited about this topic. But the very first thing I want to know about all my guests, I want to hear how you became a runner and how you ended up as a dietitian who works with the running population. Yeah, so I started running at 15, and that was just in, I played tennis, so like the running was part of conditioning for tennis, and I wanted to improve my cardio, so I would run on my own with that, and then my dad was a marathon runner, and you know, I had only run like one to three miles on my own, and one day he talked me into going on a six-mile training run with him, and I was like, no way, that's too far, I'm going to die. And he was like, no, you'll be fine. We'll do it. And we went out and I, you know, was able to complete the whole thing. And I was like hooked from that point on just the idea of pushing myself to do something that was scary and hard and accomplishing it, you know, the, I guess the high or whatever it was, the accomplishment that came from that really just got me hooked. And so, you know, I've been running on my own since I was a teenager. And when I, went to college. I would get up every morning and run before classes. And I trained for two half marathons while I was in college. And, you know, I just really loved running the movement of it, the challenge of it. You know, at some point, I developed an eating disorder. And the running also, you know, became a complicated part of that. So, you know, I enjoyed the movement of it, but it also then was tied into burning calories, making up for things I ate, uh, losing weight, controlling my body. And so, you know, I have that love part of that relationship with running, but for a while it was dysfunctional and not healthy. And that's kind of how um, I became a dietitian too. I started in college, I was going to be a speech therapist And after like the first semester of taking some of the classes, I was like, I just don't feel like this is for me. And I had already, because of my eating disorder, become really interested in nutrition and been reading a ton about it. And I saw there was a degree you could get in nutrition. I was like, this is awesome. And I had kind of had in my head too, like I knew something was wrong with my relationship with food. And so I thought maybe I could fix myself too. Um, so there's that passion for nutrition, but also this, I guess, selfish motivation, like maybe I can fix myself or fix this without having to get professional help. 
but yeah, I went through, I graduated from Arizona State with a degree in nutrition. And at some point I ended up in outpatient therapy. So I had a degree in nutrition, but I still needed, you know, help. I still needed outside help. So I went through outpatient treatment at Remuda Ranch in Chandler, Arizona, and went through recovery. But um, yeah, as far as becoming a sports nutrition, that didn't happen until about seven years ago. I worked as a clinical dietitian since 2004. So from like 2004 to 2015, I worked in different hospitals in different, you know, in Arizona and then here in Oregon as a clinical dietitian, which gave me a really strong foundation for, you know, not just the basics of nutrition, but being able to help people with any kind of complicated medical problems or conditions or diseases. And being a runner that whole time, I kind of had already been educating on sports nutrition to fuel myself. And after I had my third child in 2015, I walked away from my clinical job and I decided to go ahead and go after sports nutrition and, you know, see if I could help people with that. That's an amazing story. And I'm part of our conversation today. We're talking basically about the fundamentals of nutrition for athletes. So this is not a Uh, This is not a conversation about, you know, pre-runner race fueling. This is not a conversation about fueling during races. This is a conversation about the nutritional needs of athletes, breaking down the foundation of what nutrition means for your body, why it's so important. And hopefully through some education, we can talk about why proper nutrition, adequate, you know, more than adequate nutrition is so vitally important for athletic performance. Yes, definitely. So we're going to start with at the very, the very basic (laughs) macronutrient group. So when we talk about nutrition, we are talking about macronutrients on a very broad level that are fats, protein, and carbs. All the things that we eat have one or more of these macronutrient components in them. And they are all different things. And we were chatting before um, the episode started about a conversation I had with one of my runners about fueling with something that was fiber and sugar alcohol based and why that was not a good option compared to a carbohydrate based fuel source. Because carbohydrates And sugar alcohols and fiber, there's might be some confusion about what carbs actually are, what they do in your body, why protein's important, why fat's important. So just give us the basic primer on macronutrients and like the 101. All right. You know, like in college, they break it up. We have macronutrients, we spend a whole semester on it, and then we spend many semesters on micronutrients. And the macronutrients are carbs, protein, fat, micronutrients are all the vitamins and minerals. So I guess I'll just start with protein. And protein, you know, on a biochemical level are large molecules of long chains of amino acids. So amino acids are the building blocks of protein. And there's 20 amino acids, nine are essential, which means you have to get them through your diet because your body can't make them. And then there are 11 that are non-essential, which means your body can synthesize them, make them through, you know, products that are present in your body. Of the essential amino acids, the, the, you know, you probably hear of branch chain amino acids, isoleucine, leucine, and valine. Those are three of the nine essential amino acids, but you can get all of them through either plant proteins or animal protein sources. The thing just to keep in mind, you know, for vegans or vegetarians who are trying to get their protein 
through plant proteins is that, you know, we used to say that you had to combine like certain plants to get a complete protein. And the research shows that that's not true anymore. Just as long as you are eating a wide variety of plant-based proteins throughout the day, your body will get all the essential amino acids it needs to build the things within your body that it needs to. Um, Because protein is, it's an important component of cells, muscles, tendons, skeletal tissue, organs. Uh, You need it. (laughs) You need to, you know, to keep everything held together. Oh, but plant-based protein. The other thing to keep in mind too is that plant proteins are not as digestible as animal protein is. So needs for vegans, protein needs for vegans or vegetarians are like 10% higher than people who are eating animal and plant proteins. Before we move on to the other macronutrients, um, the protein needs for athletes are higher than the general population. Correct. If you're out there lifting weights, running, running at all, I mean, doing any sort of athletic endeavor, you're going to need more protein than if somebody who is not active, less active, right? Correct. Yeah. The RDA for protein is like 0.8 to 1 grams per kilogram of body weight for non-active people. For athletes, the ranges, it kind of depends on the source, but it's anywhere from 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram body weight. So yeah, that's significantly higher. You know, that's like twice as much, right, of inactive people. And so that's one thing I see a lot with a lot of my clients is a lot of them are not getting enough protein. So we really have to be mindful of including good sources of protein in their diet, whether they're vegan, vegetarian, or even, you know, eating animal proteins. It still seems to be a struggle for a lot of people to get that much. And as far as... um protein goes to usually uh, for protein for muscle synthesis your body there's an amino acid called leucine like I said that's one of the branch change <laughs> I can't talk branch chain amino acids one of the essential ones but that one is its job is to like trigger muscle synthesis and you need to have about 2.5 grams of that to trigger that and that is about 20 to 25 grams of animal protein or about 31 grams of plant protein. And I focus a lot on that just in recovery for like recovery nutrition for a lot of my athletes. I get them to be mindful of getting enough protein after to trigger that muscle synthesis so their body can rebuild, you know, the damage that's done while you're running or lifting weights or any of that. Yeah, I was introduced to uh, the importance of leucine by a, a podcast episode that had Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on it. Um, she's a big like protein advocate, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> talk about leucine is like the on-off switch. Yes. So either you know you have enough leucine to trigger the muscle synthesis, or you don't. And so you could eat like a little bit of protein and that's better than nothing, but it's not going to be that, yeah, let's build muscle. Woohoo. Let's go. Like, it's not the same signal to your body that it's time to rebuild. So that's why that post-workout or post-hard run or post-long run protein refueling is really important for athletes to be mindful of. Yeah. I mean, of course, carbs, you know, we always hear the carbs, but, and that is important, but yeah, that protein part is significant. So let's talk about carbs because I I feel like it's very trendy now to be uh, anti-carb for a variety of reasons. I feel like it was anti-sugar and now it's like anti-all carbs. And full disclosure, I was a like hardcore keto adherent for several years. So like I understand it. I understand the allure. 
I feel like there might be some benefits for some people, but for somebody who's trying to pursue peak performance, mm-hmm. I know that I need carbs in my life. Yes. Because carbs, your body, if you're if you're trying to do the things you want to do athletically to the best of your ability, and we'll leave the other arguments on the table for now, but from a pure performance perspective, you really need carbs to be able to perform your best. Correct. Yep. Carbs are the preferred energy source for your body. And that's really because they're just readily available from the glucose in your blood and then the glycogen stored in your muscles. But like the metabolic process it takes to access them and use them for energy and to make ATP is really, I want to say easy and convenient. Like your body is really good at that. And when it comes to fat though, fat metabolism is it itself is costly like it costs your body energy to access that fat and to metabolize that fat into energy it requires carbohydrate that whole metabolic process requires carbohydrates in and of itself so you know if you're not eating carbs then you even slow down and make that fat metabolism for energy even more you know inefficient so fat can be used as a fuel source when you're at a low intensity but research, you know, continues to show that carbohydrate at when you start to increase the intensity of exercise, your body will rely on carbs more. And so that's like another reason why to eat carbs is if you want to run fast, if you want to perform well, if you're looking to PR, you need carbs. And this isn't to say that we're saying like, just go out and eat an entire bag of table sugar. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, including carbohydrates in your diet, because carbohydrates is really a blanket term for a lot of different types of sugars, the oses, the, all those different things that you, carbohydrates arrive in your diet in a variety of forms. And obviously we have things like table sugar or pure glucose or pure fructose all the way up to those more, what we call complex carbohydrates. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two things or those things? Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, carbohydrate is like the blanket term for um, biomolecules made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Like that's what it looks like on the biochemical level. And there's monosaccharides, disaccharides, oligosaccharides, polysaccharides. And the monosaccharides are those, it's one, you know, molecule in There's glucose, fructose, galactose, like you were talking about, those oses. And then disaccharides are when you put two of those monosaccharides together. And that's where we get like table sugar from. Table sugar is fructose and glucose together. Lactose is glucose and galactose together. And then from there, you know, it's just chains of these monosaccharides until we get, you know, those complex carbs. Those complex carbs are made up of those, you know, teeny tiny little saccharides. And really, I like to think of it as they're basically just these long strains of energy. And even in plants, like when we're eating plants as carbohydrate sources, that's where we're getting our energy from is the how the plant stores the carbohydrates inside of them, if that makes sense. And so when we eat anything, whether it is, you know, a candy or a sugar, table sugar or a sweet potato, our body breaks all of that down to that simple glucose form. And that's what our body ends up using as energy. I find that a lot, I find that there's a, like people will have a lot of guilt around eating 
um, like gummy bears for fuel because they're like, oh, this is bad. This is bad sugar. I can't use this. This isn't good for my body, but I can eat a sweet potato for energy and that's good. The ultimate endpoint of both of those, though, is glucose. Like your body doesn't recognize that this is good glucose because it came from a sweet potato and this is bad glucose because it came from a gummy bear. On a, you know, once it gets into your body and it gets through the transport in your intestines, it's glucose and your body uses it as energy. There's, you know, and I'm not to say that you should just live on gummy bears. Like, of course, sweet potatoes and those complex carbs provide lots of other nutritional benefits when you're eating them as, you know, a main energy source in your diet. You've got the fiber and the vitamins and the minerals. But, you know, I just wanted to speak to that idea that there's good or bad food or good or bad sources of energy or glucose. That's the, the same point about anything once it enters, first of all, everything is just chemicals. It's yes. just different, you know, different chemicals, different molecules, different atoms arranged together. Like there's no moral inherent value to one set of atoms versus another set of atoms. They are literally all just the stuff that we're all made of, right? Whether it's a candy bar or a thing of spinach, you know, it's the same on a molecular level. At the end of the day, your body's going to use the part that it needs, which is the glucose, whatever the base part is. And so one of the reasons, let's talk a little bit about why including carbohydrates in your diet on a regular basis is good from the perspective of priming your glycogen storage. Because I feel like I've heard this more recently about adhering to a lower carb diet and then only using carbs on race day, ingesting those race day fuels. Uh -huh. And I feel like for athletes who are trying to really achieve peak performance at the really long endurance distances, like the half, the full and the ultra marathons at those higher intensities, well, I, ultra marathons may be a little bit lower intensity, but for the half and the full marathon, our glycogen storage, how much glucose we can store in our bodies, we need to be able to cram as much glucose in there as possible before we even tow the start line on race day. Talk a bit about like glycogen and, and how all that works for us. Yeah. So our glycogen, glycogen is how our body stores glucose within our muscles and our liver. And there's research that shows eating a diet, you know, where 50, 60% of our calories from carb that it helps to refill the glycogen stores to keep them full. And there's actually, so, you know, when you were talking about eating low carb and then only eating carbs on race day there, you know, there has been some research around that. And what it has shown though, is that by doing that, you are actually missing out on the opportunity to help your body. <laughs> I'm like talking in circles. Um, your body, when you practice eating, large, you know, 50 to 60% of your calories from carb on a regular basis. And you do that through your training. So you actually are practicing with carbs. Your body becomes more efficient at absorbing glucose and using it for energy. And it becomes more efficient at storing the glycogen and using the glycogen. So by eating carbs on a regular basis, you're setting yourself up for success on race day and, you know, long-term. 
you know, we talk a lot about the training that we do. It's not just about the miles. It's not just about the goal race pace training. It's about training your mind and training your body from a fueling and hydration perspective. But that includes all the other stuff. Everything that you're doing during your training cycle is going to impact you on race day. So to mm-hmm. train, to eat in a way that supports your training by including carbohydrates that is definitely part of that. Because if you have specific performance goals on race day or athletic goals that you want to achieve, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about it more holistically can be really beneficial for your overall ability to perform. Yeah. Your body can store up to like 500 grams, you know, on average. And so that's about 2000 calories. And that gets you right to that, you know, if you're running a marathon, the 20 mile point, right? And that's a lot of times where people feel like they hit the wall. And so that's why, you know, eating carbs on a regular basis as a regular part of your daily diet. And then especially leading up to the marathon, you know, you've heard of carb loading. We don't want to do it just the day before we, you know, when we really focus on increasing the amount of carbs even more, the three days before, because we're working really hard at saturating those glycogen stores. So it can get us to that 20 miles. And then the glucose we take from fuel during the run can get us beyond that and get us to the finish line strong. And just, you know, like I said, and you said too, just the practice, the practice during training, the daily eating of carbohydrates, all of that is setting you up for success on race day. So let's move on to our last macronutrient group, which is fat. (laughs) And for people who are looking at their plate or looking at their overall nutrition strategy and saying, okay, so I'm supposed to eat enough protein. I'm supposed to eat all these carbs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where does fat fit in? And fat is, it is essential to our functioning. It is makes up, you know, components of our cell membranes. Like we need to eat fat in our diet in order to be healthy human beings. Talk about the role that fat plays in our nutrition. Fat, like you said, it's totally essential for our health. It's essential for cell health, hormone production, organ protection. Um, You know, we need it as cushion to protect us, to protect our organs, to help regulate our body temperature. And it is, it's an energy source. You know, we talk a lot about using carbs, but you know, really when you're exercising and running, your body doesn't have like where it just is all using carbs all at once and all using fat all at once. It's, you know, a complicated process where it's pulling from both at the same time. And fat, you know, for athletes is a huge energy source, you know, especially for muscle contractions. Um, But again, your body needs the carbs for the whole metabolic process to make energy for those muscle contractions. And, you know, the recommendation is about 20 to 30% of our total calorie intake that come from fat. However, for like one, every gram of carb or protein is four calories and a gram of fat is nine calories. So fat though, you know, is very calorie dense. And so, you know, you don't need a ton of it to meet your needs, but you do, you do need it. And a lot of times, you know, I feel, I find that I don't inherently have to focus on, you know, telling my athletes to eat enough fat. A lot of them are really good at, you know, they're already eating peanut butter or walnuts or pumpkin seeds or flax seeds, and they're already eating salmon or avocados or using, you know, avocado oil or olive oil in their cooking or in their salads, dressings. And, you know, they're kind of just inherently already getting a good amount and getting what they need. 
it's not too often now that I run into anyone that's not getting enough. It's amazing to me when you, we look back at the last, I don't know, 50 years of nutrition fads, and it has been fads. As new research comes out and one lobby takes over in this way, like how wildly we can swing in one direction or another in terms of demonizing or lauding certain macronutrients as being you know, the good or the bad. And yes, I feel like it's really important to keep this in context mm-hmm. that everybody's body is a little bit different, which is why working with a nutrition professional like Jen, who would be beneficial for you specifically, because there is really no one size fits all when it comes to nutrition strategy, because, you know, what works for somebody might not work for somebody else. And people respond to different levels of things differently, depending just on a variety of things that are going on in their life, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're super athletic or they're in a more sedentary phase of life. So we talk about the broad recommendations, but there's still a lot of individualization when it comes to finding a nutrition strategy that works for you. Do you think it's a fair characterization? Yes, for sure. Yeah. All right. And we talked a bit just briefly about low intensity exercise and how that is more fat burning or... I hate this, you know, oh, it burns fat because I feel like the phrase fat burning implies some sort of like weight loss connotation when all it means is that you're just using your own body fat for fuel. And you do that all the time right now, somewhere in your body, you are burning body, a source of body fat for some sort of metabolic process. You just are. So, um, talk a bit about, like you said, that kind of mixing of energy sources and why as your intensity level increases, your body starts to burn glycogen, the Uh glucose in your body over the fat. And you talked a bit about how basically the metabolic cost of creating ATP with each, but let's just really hammer that home and why you cannot run an all out marathon without, you know, you need the glycogen, you need the glucose to fuel you to the end of the race. Yeah. So, um, as you know, intensity increases when you're exercising, you know, your body's using, oxygen, you know, you're sucking in more air, your body's using more oxygen. And in oxygen is a necessary part of the metabolic process to create energy. And so when you're you're running hard, your body needs even more oxygen, you know, besides just to supply your muscles and your lungs and everything with oxygen, it's going to require more oxygen to burn fat. So that's kind of where, you know, it makes it even, you're going to get a lot more tired. You're going to feel a lot more fatigued if you're just trying to rely on fat for energy. Um, And then also, you know, as intensity increases, your lactic acid goes up. And as lactic acid goes up, your body's ability to burn fat also goes down. So that makes it even harder to access, you know, the fat for energy. So Glucose glycogen, you know, really is ideal in those situations because it's so much easier and readily available for your body to use for energy. And there's the saying that fats burn in a carbohydrate flame. And it's kind of like what I talked about earlier, too. You're not even going to be able to efficiently burn fat unless you have carbohydrates present. There's just always, you know, especially as you go longer into a marathon and your glycogen stores start to dip you are going to, you know, maybe switch a little bit more to fat. But that's why you need to be taking the glucose or, you know, fuel that supplies glucose through carbohydrate while you're running. So your body can continuously access that fat too and metabolize it. It's got to be 
aided by glucose intake. And that fuel can be, you know, anything. It's, I never like recommend anything, you know, across the board. It's very, like you were talking individualized. Like I have some people who like to use maple syrup and some people like using, you know, honey stingers. Some people like Martin's. Some people eat like Reese's Pieces and pretzels, you know. Everyone's really different. It really depends on what they can handle, what they prefer, and also, you know, what they can afford. Because not all of that sports stuff is affordable either. So, you know, you can, we can pretty much find anything and make it work as long as you practice it. You practice using it while you're training. I know we said we weren't going to talk about actual, you know, training and race fueling, but it always seems to come back to it because it's the, really the best way to kind of hammer home these nutrition points. Uh, it, I feel like if I emphasize enough that you need this for, for your performance, oh, okay, well, if I do this, I'll be able to run faster. I'll be able to recover better. The protein, the carbs, the fat, uh, hopefully that all makes sense to people out there who were maybe skeptical or unsure um, going into this. So Let's move on to the micronutrients. And just from what you said earlier, I had a feeling this could be like its own episode, but <laughs> I want to talk about some of the most important that are specific to runners, the things that we tend to be deficient in, the things that we might need more of than the general population. Do you want to just start with some of the basic ones, the basic micronutrients that are really important for runners? Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot of research on micronutrients and exercise. And, you know, when they go through and look through all of them, there's not really a ton that, you know, shows an increased need with exercise, but there are a few. That's like vitamin D, iron, calcium can be one. And then, you know, depending on your diet, vitamin B12, those are like kind of the four that I often will look at and can, you know, vary and impact your performance and, you know, depending on your diet. And um, I guess I can just start with vitamin D. And vitamin D actually is a hormone. It's like the only vitamin that is a hormone. And your body makes it as your skin reacts with the UVB rays from the sunlight. It reacts with cholesterol in your body and it makes vitamin D. You know, there's this whole long metabolic process. Vitamin D takes all these different forms in your body as it's metabolized through. But it's critical. It's critical for hormones, uh, for bone health, for your immune system, for the inflammatory response. And every tissue in your body has vitamin D receptors, like even your brain does. So vitamin D, you know, is pretty darn important for athletes. And... You know, like even when I was saying there's vitamin D receptors in your brain, there's also, that's where why it's linked like to depression. Um, there's some thoughts, you know, some theories that the vitamin D receptors in your brain are also linked to the part of your brain that's linked to depression. And so that's where like the seasonal affective disorder comes into play too. And that can impact us while we're running, right? If you're depressed and you don't have the motivation to run, it can be really hard to get out in those winter months because it's cold. And then, you know, if you're just feeling unmotivated and depressed, it can make it that much harder. And so, you know, vitamin D is good to help, you know, prevent that. And I see that in most of my runners is I'll do a full nutritional analysis of their diet and I'll run through everything. And almost everyone is not getting enough vitamin D through their diets. 
So let me ask you, you think, okay, runners, we run. Most of us run outside more often than not. We should be getting enough sun exposure to counteract whatever depletion of vitamin D is going on in our bodies. What is it about running that depletes vitamin D so quickly? I don't know if the running's depleting it. Um, or like why we might need more or... We need. We definitely need, just to be more mindful of it, I think in general, so runners are... I feel like we're pretty health conscious and um, we're pretty good about putting on sunblock, right? And um, so I think that's maybe interfering with the vitamin D synthesis that we need because, you know, all you need is exposure on your forearms, legs, and your body just for like maybe 20 minutes, two or three times a week, but we're good at putting sunblock on. So that interferes with that. And I think there's a lot of runners that maybe aren't, that seem to shy away from vitamin D foods, containing foods, which are basically dairy. I see that a lot. A lot of people are staying away from dairy for whatever reason, you know, maybe it upsets their stomach or maybe it's, you know, an ethical or personal preference to stay away from it. But that's like one of the main sources of vitamin D in, in our diets. And so that's another reason why I see that people's runners diets are low in it, or maybe we're not getting enough. So I think the combination between being really mindful of staying away from dairy products and then wearing sunblock, both of those interfere with getting enough vitamin D. I was going to ask you, how does one get more vitamin D in their diet? If beyond, you know, before we talk about supplementing vitamin D, which I know is uh-huh. uh, quite common and seems to be, depending on the person, a, a solid recommendation if you are deficient in vitamin D, you know, talking to your doctor yes. or, or practitioner who can help guide you towards the A supplementation that's appropriate for you. Correct. But if somebody's uh-huh. like, I just want to see if I can get enough vitamin D from my diet first, beyond dairy, where else might we find vitamin D? Or is that kind of it? So there's you know, a lot of the alternative plant milks like uh, almond, cashew, oat milk, a lot of those are being fortified with vitamin D. You just need to make sure you're checking the nutrition label and making sure that's supplemented with vitamin D that can or fortified with vitamin D. That can be a great source of dietary vitamin D. And then there's like the fattier fishes, salmon. Those are a great source of vitamin D. And then uh, mushrooms. Mushrooms are, I like, this is like a fun little fact. If you put mushrooms out in sunlight for 30 minutes, they will make their own vitamin D. And so you can, you know, you can add those sun exposed mushrooms to your diet. That's a really good way to get in some vitamin D. I love that. That is such a cool biohack. Yeah. (laughs) And actually, I want to go back to what you said before about runners put on sunscreen, or at least you should, if you're spending any significant time in the sun, you should always make sure that you're taking proper care for your sun exposure. And I don't know if you've read Dina Castor's memoir, Let Your Mind Run, but she, for those of you who don't know, it's a, she was a, she is, she's still alive. She's in her forties, a phenomenal American female marathoner who took bronze at the Athens Olympic games in 2004. In her book, she talks about how she was training for, I think it was the 2008 marathon and like a mile into the race at the Olympics, a bone in her foot broke. Like she was running and one of her like metatarsals in her foot snapped in the race. And she, you know, had to obviously get picked up by the van and went back to the States and did a whole bunch of testing. And she was severely deficient in vitamin D. 
And what they figured out is that even though she was spending all this time outside, she'd had a skin cancer scare recently. And so was training in basically like long sleeved everything, hat, SPF 100, and basically was not getting nearly enough sun exposure to let her body get the vitamin D it needed, produce that vitamin D. And then obviously she wasn't supplementing because she didn't know. So it was like low vitamin D can have serious consequences. Yeah, because it's vitamin D is what helps your body in your gut, like helps calcium be absorbed. Like vitamin D and calcium work together. And both of those are really important for bone health. You know, you were talking about your doctor can run a blood test to see what your vitamin D levels are. And that can indicate you know, where it is. And depending on the level you're at, or even if you're deficient, that will definitely influence the recommendation for supplementation. But it's good to know too, that the serum levels for vitamin D for inactive people are a little bit lower than like what people recommend for athletes. And so like the preferable range that we like to see vitamin D in for athletes is a lot of research suggests 40, um, I want to, it's 40 NGs per millimole. And you would, you know, you'd have to look at that for your doctor and see what your test results. But, you know, that's something just to keep in mind too, that our levels are, I guess, ideal levels are a little bit higher than the inactive regular population. I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like that applies to a lot of the micronutrients we're talking about when they formulate these recommended ranges that's based on mm -hmm. a massive population it is such a a broad kind of conservative recommendation where it's it's based on a population that is very diverse and we're talking about a very specific population that is athletically inclined and so the needs the range of normal for athletes for some of these values is going to be different than the range of normal for just the regular person who's got their gets their blood drawn and analyzed off the street. So if you, you know, have a value of yeah. a certain whatever that is in the low range, you know, that, well, it still might be within the quote unquote normal range for the general population. It might be outside the normal range for an athlete. Yeah. And it also, you know, kind of depends. Like some people are just more sensitive to lower levels or not. I mean, you might have people with vitamin D who, you know, is like 32 and it's good and they feel fine. And then you could have someone, you know, that has 40 and still might be like, oh, I need a little bit more. It really is so very person um, specific and individualized. And, you know, that's a huge reason to go see your doctor and to even, you know, work with a sports dietitian that they can help you figure out that level that's best. And iron's the same way for the regular population when it comes to ferritin, ferritin stores, um, a normal level is like 20 or above, but for athletes, we like to see it higher, like 30 to 40. You know, we could just use that to go right into iron. Iron is really important for red blood cell production, for hemoglobin, and um, hemoglobin is the part of the cell that binds with oxygen and carries oxygen all throughout your body to all the muscles and tissues. So if you're low in iron, that means the transport of oxygen is decreased. And so you're going to feel tired. That's where that fatigue and that tiredness and even lightheadedness or out of breath feelings can come from when you're iron deficient. It's because your body's not able to transport oxygen to the full extent that it needs to be. 
And so, of course, that affects your athletic performance. But, you know, iron's also linked to your immune system. It helps, you know, with different enzymes and protein metabolic process that are happening. Helps synthesize DNA, connective tissue, hormones. It's just linked to a lot. The iron is, it's fascinating to me. They call it runner's anemia because I know that anemia in general just means deficiency. And but you when you talk about having an iron anemia, it's an iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. But they call it runner's anemia for a reason because it seems to be something that is more common among runners than one would hope. And I feel like it's every you know couple of weeks where somebody pops up on my Instagram feed about like, oh, I've been diagnosed with anemia. That's why I felt like absolute crap on my runs. Mm-hmm. I had I was diagnosed with anemia late last year. It was breathlessness. It was the most bizarre. Mm-hmm. I felt like I couldn't catch my breath. And what you said about you basically you can't catch your breath because your breath doesn't, can, you know, we talk about we breathe in and our body absorbs the oxygen from the air and it gloms onto the red blood cells and it gets transported in our body. It's like, I didn't have enough transporters to bring me the oxygen I needed. So in a sense, my body was saying, you yeah. need to breathe more. You're feeling breathless because I need more oxygen. And all I was, you know, I was deficient in iron. Yeah. So the main signs of anemia are things like that breathlessness when running, everything feels super hard. Um, you're super tired all the time. Yeah. And if so, if you have these kind of like unexplained symptoms of fatigue, breathlessness, it could be an iron deficiency. So it's a, definitely something that is worth getting checked out uh, in a blood yeah. test. Yeah, for sure. And that's the other thing, like a lot of doctors will run, there's some basic blood tests, you know, that they use to check for iron deficiency, like red blood cell count, iron binding capacity, hematocrit, hemoglobin. And they'll look at that. And sometimes they'll, you know, that's what they're traditionally running to look for iron deficiency. And sometimes that can all come back normal, but you still have all the signs and symptoms. And it's because your ferritin stores are low. And that's what I was like talking about with the ferritin. Ferritin is the form that iron takes stored in your body. And so if you're, you know, not getting enough in your diet, your body will start to raid your ferritin stores to keep everything else normal. And so, um, you know, all that can look normal, but if your doctor hasn't checked your ferritin, then it might go undiagnosed. So, you know, if you're concerned about iron deficiency, you have those signs and symptoms, really advocate for having your doctor check your ferritin stores along with everything else, because that then will give you the whole picture. And our bodies as runners, we use, like, I can't stress this enough, a lot more iron than somebody who is sedentary or even somebody who is active, but not a runner. Yeah. Because, and this just fascinates me, uh, something called foot strike hemolysis. Yeah. And this is fascinating to me. It's when the impact hitting the ground, every time we strike the ground with our foot, we are literally crushing and killing red blood cells with every single footstep that we take. (laughs) Yeah. So that, you know, causes our iron um, needs to increase. And then you also lose iron through your sweat. So while you're running, you're sweating a lot. And there's also, you know, the impact of running can cause small micro tears in your intestines. So, you know, you might not even see it, you know, in your stool because it's just minuscule amounts of blood being lost. But there's another, you know, source of iron and blood being lost there. So yeah, as runners, we do, we need to be on top of our iron because there's so many ways we're losing it. 
And like all things in running, it's the cumulative effect, right? So it's mm-hmm. like if you went out for one run a year, you would have a negligible loss of iron. Yeah. But we do this most days. You know, there are people out there listening to this podcast who run 60, 70, 80 miles a week. Like that adds up. So if you're out there losing iron with every footstep, with every drop of sweat, if you're menstruating, all these things add up to increased iron needs. So yeah. What are good sources of iron in our diet if we're looking for whole food or diet-based sources of iron? Yeah, the thing, so this like what makes it hard to um, to stay on top of your iron is that iron in food sources, it's just not absorbed well. (laughs) There's there's two different types of iron in our food. There's heme and non-heme. Heme is found in animal sources. So beef, you know, the red meat. Uh, turkey, really any animal meat is going to provide you with some iron, but it has a 25% absorption rate. And then when you go to the plant sources, it only has like a 17% absorption rate because of the, the non-heme. And that's just because the in the plants, there's also other things um, like the fiber. Um, and then there's like antioxidants or tannins that can interfere with the absorption of the iron from the plant sources. And there's also things like you said, you know, that interfere with iron absorption. It's calcium also interferes with iron absorption too. So like if you are trying to get more iron and maybe you take a supplement or you're eating more iron rich food and you also take a calcium supplement or eat a bunch of calcium rich food, like you're not going to get nearly as much iron. So let's say in a perfect world, you're getting 25% of that animal based iron. Well, all of a sudden you just ate, I don't know, a bunch of dairy that had calcium in it. And so it's even less than 25%. So, you know, how you combine the ways you get these micronutrients is really important. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Iron and calcium compete for the same absorption site. So, and, you know, it's better to save dairy or calcium sources at a different meal than if you're eating an iron-rich meal. It's also good to pair vitamin C, citric acid, with high iron foods or meals because that helps with absorption. But, you know, I kind of mentioned it, like the fiber tannins, which are like the dark colored phytochemicals that provide like coffee and tea with that dark color, that interferes with iron absorption. The other... Let's see, some other plant sources are like cashews, broccoli, lentils, green peas, tofu, and then there's iron-fortified cereals out there that are great. As far as iron absorption goes, too, if you are taking an iron supplement, you do not want to take it like right after a run because your your body's ability to absorb iron is lower after a run. So you want to, you know, wait a couple hours, too or to eat a iron rich meal. You don't want to do that right after a run. The timing of all of this is really interesting because that's why I feel like people get so confused and frustrated when it comes to nutrition, right? Because they're told, okay, mm-hmm. make sure you have enough fat, protein, and carbs in your diet. Okay, done. Oh, but you should really eat them at this specific time of day for optimal blah, blah, blah. Uh, okay. And don't forget you have to take these specific micronutrients here and they interfere with each other. So you can only, and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. I feel like everything that I do is I'm, I'm making a wrong turn somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, a lot of times I'll just like have to remind people, you know, just do your best to include a large variety of foods. And, you know, big picture, 
just do your best. Like something's better than nothing, right? Yeah. And that's what all this is. Like not, it's never going to be perfect. <laughs> really, you know, a, a, why, a food that has a wide variety of food, different types of food, you're going to meet all of your needs. You know, if you can eat a wide variety of foods in your diet, you'll, you'll probably get most of your bases covered, believe it or not. So, so beyond micronutrients and beyond the macronutrient food groups and talking about kind of the basics of nutrition, I know we m talked mostly about whole food sources mm -hmm. of these nutrients and with a kind of, you know, you know, asterisk about when it's appropriate to supplement when you are deficient in certain micronutrients. Yes. But now let's take a brief detour into supplement land <laughs> as the final part of our discussion and talking about the things that you would not find in a whole food diet when we talk about, should I take supplements? And that can be literally I mean, it's such a huge gamut of things. So yeah. you mentioned before, briefly, branching amino acids, BCAAs. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about micronutrient supplementation. Like this is not about your iron supplement or your vitamin D supplement. This is stuff you might find at like a GNC or to specifically boost workout or running performance. Some of this stuff is absolute crap, but some of it actually might be beneficial for some people in certain situations. So can you talk about the few things that people may derive benefit from when it comes to supplementing their diet? Yeah. So, I mean, we can start with BCAAs. I actually, I get asked about that a lot. You know, there's not actually overwhelming like support to say that you have to take branch chain amino acids the you know in theory they're they can use they can be used directly by your muscle for energy and so people you know might take them before a workout and feel like it helps with their um, energy I you know believe in the book roar Dr. Stacy Sims recommends it um, before some exercises you know depending on where you are in your menstrual cycle but the thing with branch chain amino acids is that you get plenty of them from eating in your diet, whether it's through plant or animal sources. And the only time your body really will rely on branch chain amino acids for energy is if you're not eating enough, if you're not eating enough calories. And so, you know, most of the time, I think those are probably a waste of money because you can get them through your diet and through eating enough. And that kind of goes with pre-workouts too. Pre-workouts have a lot of the branch chain amino acids and caffeine and a bunch of other um, things in them. And for the most part, there's not, you know, a whole lot of research or evidence showing that they're worth the money or worth it at all. And they can be dangerous too, because um, supplements are not regulated by the FDA. And so there's no guarantee that what that supplement says it has that it actually has. And so that's kind of the scary thing too, especially with these pre-workouts or some of the supplements that are targeted for bodybuilding. There's, you know, been where they've had people, you know, grab supplements and test what's in them. And some of them will have like banned substances in them. And, you know, for amateur athletes, maybe, you know, that's not a big deal because we're not being pulled aside and tested. That's still alarming. You know, like we're, they're giving us dangerous things that could be hurting us and we don't even know. So, you know, with any supplement you're taking, it's good to look for something that's third party tested. 
Can we talk about creatine for a minute? Because you, yeah. so first of all, I have to say, I absolutely love your Instagram account because you cite your posts. And I yeah. love that. You always, when you have a post that's informational, you always have a, a slide that is your citations, which I'm like, yes, cite everything all the time. Um, yeah. And you post a really great thing about creatine with some citations about why and how creatine might be beneficial for runners. Which I feel like we talk about bodybuilding, like creatine's kind of, used to be or has been thought of traditionally as the word the the purview of bodybuilders but it might be beneficial for runners too yes yeah creatine is one of the most you know studied and researched supplements and it's totally safe um it's not a steroid like some i think because you know people equate it with bodybuilders they think that it's dangerous or it's linked to steroids or um and it's not it's made up of glycine, arginine, and methionine, which are amino acids. And it can, creatine is naturally made by your body. And it's also present in animal meat, you know, because meat is muscles. And so you're eating another animal's muscles, you're eating someone else's creatine. The reason creatine is beneficial or could be beneficial for runners is that it is used by the body to make ATP. And that whole, you know, complicated metabolic process you know, that creates ATP, which is the energy our cells use, especially for high intensity exercise, creatine helps make that. It helps with the synthesis of ATP. So, you know, mostly in high intensity, like short burst exercise, like maybe sprinting, you would probably benefit from it the most, but it also can really help with recovery after exercise. And there's some other benefits of it, like bone density, it improves bone density, glucose metabolism, you know, which could help with using it for energy or your glycogen stores and brain function. So those are all, you know, benefits of using creatine too. Um, But I really like to um, talk to like my vegan or my vegetarian clients about using it because, you know, they're not going to be eating the same amount of animal products. And so their research has shown that they have lower creatine amounts in their muscles. And so there is that benefit of helping with recovery if you start supplementing with it. And, you know, there used to be, there's this idea that you have to load with it, like to load your muscles up with it. And that's not true. You just have to, in the timing of it, creatine is one of those things where it doesn't matter what the timing is. So that's another benefit of it. But you can just take three to five grams daily and it can, you know, after a couple of weeks of taking it that way, it'll build up the creatine stores in your muscles and it can help, you know, potentially with recovery. The only downside, and, you know, I don't know if this really is a downside, but is that uh, creatine is stored within your muscle with water. And so some people will notice like a two to five pound weight gain and it's not really weight, you know, it's just water retention. Um, so it's nothing to freak out about. It's just water retention because your muscles are holding on to that water. So that's really cool about creatine. I've been I've been reading, you know, your post and some other similar stuff. I'm like, oh, maybe I should look into this because I'm very much of the try to keep it simple. I do supplement on some things, like I said, you know, because of my anemia diagnosis last year, I do take an iron mm-hmm. supplement that my doctor has prescribed, you know, but in general, I do try to generally get what I need from whole food sources. But sometimes the research is just 
there's no downside and there may be some upsides. Is there anything else that you're excited about that the research shows might be beneficial and not just a total waste of money? You know, there's nothing I like really strongly recommend. I'll have people ask me about collagen a lot. Um, you know, the only thing I've seen that really makes me think, you know, maybe try collagen is that there was some research that showed if you took it an hour before some weight bearing exercises that specified like an injured part of your body, there was some, you know, improvement in tissue repair, but you have to take 15 grams of it with 50 milligrams of vitamin C in that specific way, like an hour before an exercise that's targeting that area. And otherwise, you know, I don't, I usually tell people to save their money. Uh, collagen is not, you know, it doesn't have all of the essential amino acids, so it's not a complete protein source. You know, you can't use it as like a protein powder. It doesn't have the leucine in it to initiate muscle synthesis. And your body already makes, you know, collagen from your diet. So, you know, I don't really go out of my way to recommend that. And beet juice and cherry juice, those are both things, you know, those are from whole foods and there's, there's not really a downside to taking them, but I don't know if like the research on them is overwhelming and, you know, where you would see a huge benefit though either, but they're, you know, if people want to try them, I usually say you can try them. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a try. Like with the beet juice, the thing with the beet juice is it contains nitrates, which can help dilate blood vessels, which improves blood flow and oxygen delivery. The research showed there was like a 1% improvement in running performance. And so, you know, you have to take though like 500 milliliters, which is about two cups of beet juice, like three hours before. So I don't know. That is so much beet juice. Yeah, I'm not a, I actually tried taking the beet powder. And so there's like 10 grams, it's like 10 grams of powder. And I had diarrhea every time I tried it. So, and that is one of the downsides of beet juice is that some people's GI system can't take it. So I don't know. I don't think it's that tasty. And the diarrhea while I'm running, you know, really just made it not worth it for me. But I don't know. You can try it and see how you feel. See if it helps. Yeah. Maybe stay close to home on that run just in case. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then cherry juice, it's, you know, found to fight inflammation and um, it also contains melatonin. So if you're going to do cherry juice, I would do it before bed. And the recommended dose is 30 milliliters of the concentrate, um, like two times a day, or you can take it you know, the 60 mils right before bed or eat 60 cherries. And it has to be a specific type of cherry. It has to be the tart Montmorency cherry. It can't just be any, you know, random cherry juice. It's got to be that specific tart cherry juice. What I think is really interesting about, you know, all these, oh, the next great compound and like, just, you know, oh, we talk about the research is like, well, beets contain this and cherries contain that. And we talk about, okay, having to isolate that compound and then be able to ingest that compound in enough quantities to actually make a difference. But then that thing that we're eating has to then make it through our digestive tract to the place in our body where it's supposed to be able to do all this magic work. And our bodies are not, just because a compound 
in the lab shows promise of this effect on whatever does not mean that it's going to behave that way in our bodies. It's like, it would be great if it did, but our bodies are not, they don't behave like that. So even if something, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. Yeah. The way things work isolated in a Petri dish is totally different than how it works in your body. Um, But yeah, you know, not to say that, you know, you shouldn't incorporate beets or cherries in your everyday diet. Like, yeah, they're beneficial. They're great sources of antioxidants and um, there might be a, you know, a little bit of that happening, but it's not going to be like this huge performance boost. It's not the silver bullet. I think everyone wants the silver bullet, right? Yes. They want to be told if you eat this food, it's going to be the cure-all. If you eat this thing at this timing and this quantity, that's going to be the solution to all of your problems to make you run faster and sleep better and lose weight. And like, that's just not, nothing in, nothing exists that's going to do to be that one magic like you said, silver bullet to solve all your problems and make you into an elite class runner, unfortunately. (laughs) You know, for performance, it really just comes down to, you know, the basics kind of making sure you're eating enough calories to fuel your performance, the, you know, carbohydrates, protein, fat, a good combination of all of that. And, you know, in that fruits and vegetables to meet your micronutrient needs and you know, you've got to have a strong foundation and a strong base if you want to perform well. And then you can dial in the nutrition for fueling before, after, and during. And that's, you know, how you perform well, you know, as far as nutrition goes. Is there anything, like the the last thing we'll kind of touch on uh, before we have to say goodbye, is there anything that you're seeing recently, any supplements or trends that are alarming to you or seem dangerous um, that your clients come to you and say, I'm doing this or I'm taking this. And you're saying, stop, don't do that. That is harmful. Not really. I have seen people who have started taking high amounts of vitamin D all on their own. And that, you know, has been alarming just because you can't take too much of it. It's a fat soluble vitamin and it can cause, it can build up and it can cause like liver damage and toxicity. Um, so, you know, again, you don't just like self-diagnose yourself, go talk to a doctor and get some specified <laughs> recommendations. But um, I think the thing that's just, I see over and over again, that's concerning is clients just not eating enough. Like they're, they still have the lighter is faster mentality And so they're trying to lose weight, you know, while they train for a marathon, they're not eating enough. And then they're suffering fatigue, they're suffering GI problems, they're missing their periods, you know, their hair is falling out, they have iron deficiency anemia, their vitamin D stores are low. It's just this huge, you know, snowball effect from not eating enough. And so um, I feel like that's the biggest concern, you know. People are afraid to gain weight or afraid of, or they don't, you know, like the weight their body's at for whatever reason, and they start to restrict what they eat, and it just impacts their performance and their bodies physically, mentally, emotionally, and even, you know, can impact your life socially when you start to go down that road. And so that's, you know, really the most alarming thing I think I come across on a regular basis. 
And I think that's a lot more prevalent than we really discussed. And I know it's it's becoming a lot more, um, I want to say, fashionable to talk about how important fueling is. And yet we still see a lot of posts or images of uh, specifically, you know, female runners with very low body fat percentages. And the internalized messaging is, I need to look like them to run like them. And that is not true. You don't need 7% body fat to be your fastest self. You need to be at your healthy body composition to be your fastest self. And you only get that when you're eating enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you are concerned about your relationship with food, um, you know, there's a lot, you know, myself included, but there's a lot of other sports dietitians out there who are working on that. You can find them, um, you know, on Instagram, like Starla Shines, Featherstone Nutrition. There's a lot of other dietitians out there because, you know, I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I might not be the great fit for you, but there's another dietitian out there that could be. And, you know, we really love helping people work through that and to develop a healthier relationship with their bodies and with food and with fueling because it is so prevalent and it really, it harms so so much more than just, you know, our food and our body. It harms our relationships, you know, and our emotions, you know, even your ability, sometimes your attention at work, like it can impact so many aspects of our lives. And so, and it's hard, it's hard to fix it on your own. And sometimes, you know, it takes a lot longer too than just reading a book or a couple weeks or a couple months. It can sometimes take years to heal that too. And that's why getting professional help can help with that too. So you mentioned, yes, you are a sports dietitian who is on Instagram. And I, like I said, I love your Instagram content because it is so well-sourced and well-cited. And in the age of the internet, when anybody can post anything and claim it as fact, you actually go out of your way to cite and source your material, which I, every time I see your post, I'm like, oh God, you know, I really should put citations in my post too. So thank you for doing that. But where can people find you if they want to get in touch and, and see what you're yeah. doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram as marathonmama underscore RD. Um, I have a website called Endurance Health and Nutrition. You know, I do personalized sports nutrition coaching uh, and consulting for runners, male, female, and non-runners too. You know, sometimes people just want to tune up in, or just work on their relationship with their body and food. I can help with that too. So that's where I'm at there. And yeah, that's it for me. And we'll link to all of this in the, in the show notes. So you can follow Jen directly and find her website and find her on Instagram. This has been fantastic. And I feel like we kind of scratched the surface on the really nerdy scientific stuff. And every time you mentioned something, I was like, oh, but I want to talk about what happens when ATP becomes ADP. And I want to talk. So I'm like, I feel like we, we might have a super nerdy conversation at some point in the future, but I really appreciate you taking the time today. I learned some stuff, which I always love when I learn things from my guests. So I want to say thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, nutrition is like one of those things you could spend hours talking about because there's so many rabbit holes to go down. <laughs> All right. Well, Jen, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. 